Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Starship Sofa, everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 32 on a Wednesday night. I hope everyone is fine and well. I certainly am, but I am still stuck in this mammoth run of working. <laughs> don't like work. <laughs> Three days off in about a month, month and a bit now, so struggling on, but still desperate to get these shows out. So we'll start with a little bit of poetry. The dying physicist tells her why goodbye is meaningless. By Laurel Winter. I will see you later, and earlier, and over and over, and tomorrow, and today, and yes, I will see you yesterday. Time and space, they've proved to my satisfaction, are nothing more than mathematical abstraction. So, I will see you then, and now. And somehow, sweetheart, much to your surprise, I will see you before and after the first and last time I ever see you. So kiss me hello again, and... Don't cry. Just like to say, Laurel, thank you very much for that. And Diane, again, thank you so much. Links on the site to Diane's and Laurel's site. So now we come on to our flash fiction, and it's by none other than science fiction writer Jack McDivitt. I'll just give you a little heads up on Jack McDivitt. Born 1935, he is an award-winning American science fiction author whose novels frequently deal with attempts to make contact with alien races. McDivitt's first published story was The Emerson Effect in Twilight Zone magazine in 1981. Two years later, he published his first novel, The Hercules Hex. His new book, Cauldron, is one of Library Journal's five best science fiction fantasy novels of 2007. And Cauldron was Ace Book's featured sci-fi book for November 2007. So mighty praise on that book. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy the tale. The Candidate by Jack McDevitt The high and low points of my career came on the same night, when we beat George Washington and Peter Pollock returned to the White House for a second term. Well, okay, it wasn't really Washington. It was an artificial intelligence programmed to behave like Washington. But a lot of people got confused. When you've been in politics as long as I have, you know how easily people get confused. Fortunately. The Washington campaign started as a gag, graduated into an experiment, caught fire, and it became a full-fledged national effort. I can't explain it. I don't think anyone can. President Pollock's numbers were down but the Democratic candidate was a non-stop talker who put everybody to sleep, so we knew it would be a close race. Then Washington showed up. He was a software package, developed at the University of Georgia to play the part of the first president in seminars. He was so believable and so compelling that somebody at the school put him on a local radio show, and the next thing we knew he was well on his way to becoming a national phenomenon. At first, no one took him seriously, 
but people were desperate for a candidate they could believe in. The bloggers got in line almost immediately. The general gave an interview to the Florida Times Union. The wire services picked up, and by God, he did sound like George Washington. Next thing we knew, a Federalist Party had sprung into existence. Donations started showing up, first in small amounts and ultimately in a tidal wave. I was running the president's campaign, and we all had a pretty good laugh when they tried to put him on the ballot in Georgia. The Democrats tried to block it. Candidates have to be born in the U.S., they pointed out, and they have to be at least 35 years old. We could have stopped it then, but if Washington got into the general election, he'd pull votes from the Democrats, not from us. We knew our base wasn't going to support a candidate who wasn't even human. So I called in some favors, and when the case went to the Supreme Court, they surprised the country. They examined the candidate and ruled they could find no reason to suppose he was not a Washington equivalent, the first time that terminology was used. He was therefore clearly well past the minimum age limit. As to the requirement he be born in the United States, the software had been written in Georgia, and the meaning of born, said the court, is not limited to biological events. It was a 6-3 decision. Early on, Washington showed every sign of splitting the Democratic vote. I watched him a few times on cable, and he was persuasive. He didn't like the frivolous spending didn't like the fact that people who'd worked their entire lives couldn't afford medications, didn't like the corruption he saw in the Capitol. I thought he came across as wooden and maybe a trifle stern. Americans, I thought, don't like being lectured. They could have simply tied him into the programs, done the whole thing electronically, but somebody in his campaign was too smart for that. He was housed in the Coriolis 5000, and they dutifully set it on the table along with a screen. The screen provided an animated image from the Gilbert Stewart portrait, except that cut the general's hair and put him in a dark gray business suit. By midsummer, he was making the rounds of the network talk shows, and I watched his polls continue to rise. The week before he made his first appearance on Meet the Press, he passed the Democratic candidate and moved to the runner-up spot. At that point, the National Conservative Union threw its weight behind him, as did the ACLU. The National Rifle Association, always a friend of Pollock's, announced it would sit the election out and I began to suspect I'd misjudged the voters. To start with, the liberal media was coming over to his side. After some hesitation, they decided the Democratic candidate was a lost cause. Russert, at first ill at ease, talking to the Coriolis 5000, warmed to him. Are you really George Washington, he asked? The man's dead, said Washington. Give him a break. But I'm everything he was. Russert asked about the intervention, which by then had become another of those endless wars. We intended the nation to lead by example, the general said. We would not willingly have plunged into the affairs of others. The Washington image stared out of the TV screen. Keep your own house in order. It is enough. Take care of your own. Do it competently, and the world will follow. We realized, belatedly, that we were in a race. After his appearance with John Stewart, there was no longer any doubt. I would prefer, he told the vast audience watching that night, Fifty-two share, according to Nielsen, that you not vote for me. And I'll tell you why, John. It sets a bad precedent. People should be governed by other people, not by software systems. If the voters insist on putting me in, I will do my best. But I fear the long-term potential. He thereby moved into virgin territory. So we went after him. Used his own words. Doesn't want the job. And we looked at his record. Only officer to survive the battle of the wilderness. What did that tell you about him? And do we really want a former slave owner in the White House? We knew we couldn't touch him on national security, but we demanded to know where he stood on the issues. What about Roe vs. Wade? Put it aside for now, he said. At the moment, 
we have bigger problems. We got some of our base back on that one. Gay marriage? I cannot see that anyone is harmed. We should be careful about codifying moral strictures. They change too easily. We got some more of our people back, but there was something reassuring about them. We talked about Orwell and Frankenstein. Don't ask how that got in there, but it, it appealed to the voters, so we kept hitting it. Vote for people, we said. We found a few physicists who were willing to say publicly that an artificial intelligence could develop a glitch. Could become very dangerous. Would you trust the black box in the hands of a computer? We held on. We were still holding on at 2 a.m. election night when we went down to the last district in Indiana. But we took the state by a few hundred votes, and that put us over the top. Pollock went on TV after Washington conceded. He said how we had saved the nation from a hardware conspiracy. He tends to say things like that when he gets off script. He thanked the campaign workers, and everybody cheered. When it was over, he took me into his quarters to express his appreciation. A Rainbow 360, the newest model, rested on the coffee table. We saved the country, Will, he said. We'll get legislation passed to bar the damn things from holding office. Otherwise, I guess they'll trot Abe Lincoln out next time. Yes, I said, and congratulations, Mr. President. It meant four more years for me, too, as chief political adviser. No, it's not in the cards, Will. He looked almost genuinely pained. We have to look to the future. That was a shock. What do you mean, sir? It was a near thing, this election. We completely miscalculated our opponent's strength. I mean, incumbent president and all, it should have been easy. But I need someone who won't be taken by surprise. I was trying not to let my anger show. Who did you have in mind, sir? He smiled at the Rainbow 360. Will, meet Carl Rove. Don't forget, copyright is Jack McDivitt. If you want to go over and check Jack's site out, link's there on the website. Narration today was by our good friend, Mr. Grant Stone. Grant, I will see you and Diane on the round table very soon. Now we get to Starship Sofa's one of the kind of highlights, actually. It's, it's bringing in numbers, is the, the fact article. And I'm really actually quite pleased, and it, it gets me all excited, this. So today is by our good friend, Amy H. Sturgis. So Amy, what is it today you're talking about? Today I would like to shift my attention on genre history to focus on television, one television series in particular, this show ended 20 years ago and was pathbreaking in science fiction history for a number of reasons, and yet there's a good chance you've never heard of it before. What I would like to do is point out some of the science fiction firsts that this series represents and also talk about the irony of its eventual demise. Perhaps I will even persuade you to go out onto the World Wide Web and discover more about this series. The television show in question went by the perhaps unfortunate name of Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, and it ran on Canadian and U.S. television in 1987 and 1988. Genre fans who didn't see the series may still know about it, because 14 of its episodes were penned by a young J. Michael Straczynski, who would go on to be known for a number of other series and other science fiction media including two of my favorite shows, Babylon 5, which ran from 1994 to 1998, and Jeremiah, which ran from 2002 to 2004. 
In fact, the very first mention of Babylon 5 came in an episode of Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, the episode The Final Stand. So the seeds of Straczynski's thought are highly visible in the show. Despite the series' title, which actually refers to the main character, Jonathan Power, the show balanced, or actually mixed, and appealed to children and adults, thanks to its excellent writing and eerie dystopian future. The series was set in a post-apocalyptic Earth of 2147. The story arc actually was designed to be played out over four years. The opening went a little something like this. Earth 2147, the legacy of the Metal Wars, where man fought machine and machines won. Biodreads, monstrous creations that hunt down human survivors and digitize them. Volcania, center of the Biodread Empire, stronghold and fortress of Lord Dread, feared ruler of this new order. But from the fires of the Metal Wars arose a new breed of warrior, born and trained to bring down Lord Dread and his Biodread Empire. They were soldiers of the future, mankind's last hope. This may sound like simple, black-and-white children's fare, but in reality the show was anything but. The ambitious scripts wrestled with significantly adult topics and included violence, sexual innuendo, profanity, and even the violent death of one of the main characters. In fact, the series won critical acclaim, and not just for its special effects. Siskel and Ebert praised it. In 1988, it was nominated for a Daytime Emmy for makeup. In 1988, it was also nominated for Gemini Awards for Best Costume Design, Best Photography, Best Production Design and Art Direction, and it won the Outstanding Technical Achievement Award. But it was also nominated for Best Performance by a Lead Actress in a Television Series for Jessica Steen, and Best Writing for a Television Series for J. Michael Straczynski. In 1989, it won the International Monitors Award for Best Audio Design in the Series. The characters were dark, three-dimensional, and often conflicted, and the themes included such sophisticated ideas as war is hell, the unintended consequences of attempting to better humanity in a kind of paternalistic way that leaves the humans in question without the choice as to whether or not they wish to be bettered, and also the question at the fundamental heart of all science fiction as to what it means to be human. Ironically, the two primary lessons drawn from Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future are lessons, I would argue, that the show's opponents really needed to learn. One of those is that freedom is worth fighting for, and the other, that technology is amoral, neither good nor bad. People can choose to be moral or immoral, but in fact, technology is neither one. So the show is inherently not anti-scientific or anti-computer or anti-technology despite the fact it set up an opposition between human resistance and the will of the machine. The cast went something like this. Captain Jonathan Power, the master of the incredible power suits that transformed each soldier into a one-man attack force, was portrayed by Tim Dunnigan, who would go on to portray Davy Crockett in several Walt Disney made-for-TV movies. Major Matthew Hawk Masterson, Fighter in the Sky, the veteran resistance leader and mentor to Captain Power, was portrayed by Peter McNeil, 
who is still very active in film and television today, most recently seen on series such as Queer as Folk and films such as A History of Violence. Lieutenant Michael Tank Ellis, ground assault unit, was the product of genetic experimentation gone wrong, an engineered super soldier who was no longer needed to fight the wars that the government created him for. He was portrayed by Danish actor Sven Ol Thorsen, who's perhaps best remembered as the retired, undefeated gladiator who came back to fight Maximus in Ridley Scott's Gladiator, but also appears in just about every Arnold Schwarzenegger film there is. Sergeant Robert Scout Baker, Espionage and Communications, was portrayed by Maurice Dean Wendt, a Canadian-based actor who starred in several television shows and movies, perhaps the most notable for science fiction fans, including RoboCop, Prime Directives, Sci Factor, and the Tech War movies and television shows. Corporal Jennifer Pilot Chase, the tactical systems expert, was essentially rescued from the Captain Power version of the Nazi youth and was portrayed by Jessica Steen, who later went on to have starring roles in Homefront and Earth 2 and a recurring role in NCIS. Lastly, Dr. Lyman Taggart, who became Lord Dredd, the scientist who wished to remake humanity in the image of the machine and thus set off the Metal Wars, was brought to life by David Himblen of La Femme Nikita and Earth Final Conflict fame. I've already mentioned that Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future was unusual because it mixed what was seen as a sort of kiddie show premise with very sophisticated adult scripts. But there's a couple of other reasons you should care about Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future in terms of genre history. One is that it is one of the first series to incorporate a real cyberpunk mentality into its setting and themes. Freedom fighters are digitized, literally downloaded and stored in the central memory of Overmind, the controlling machine. Any SF reader familiar with William Gibson would feel right at home in episodes such as Flame Street. This episode takes place in an underground community at the very fringes of the apocalyptic landscape, where a group of hackers and players plug into a virtual world via the jacks in the back of their heads and experience a common shared reality. This is only three years after the publication of Neuromancer and the coining of the term cyberspace, so pretty impressive stuff. So you already have two reasons to remember Captain Power. One, that it was a series originally pitched to and packaged for a child audience that quickly gained an adult following and critical appreciation. The second, that it was one of the first shows to communicate a truly cyberpunk mentality. But Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future represented another science fiction first. It was the first television series to be interactive. Now, the visuals of Captain Power were very interesting. It was a combination of live action, all of the major characters were performed by human actors, and animation. The number one threat to the Freedom Fighters, the Biodreads, the completely synthetic henchmen of the machine, were wholly computer-generated images. When I say the show was interactive, I mean that the viewing audience was able to 
fight the biodreads through the television. The show came, for example, uh, with at least three minutes of action sequences in every single episode. And these biodreads had red flashing panels on their chests. The idea was that people would buy, um, for example, the XT7 jet, a handheld weapon that could be shot at the television screen and would register whether or not the viewer actually struck one of the biodreads. Conversely, if the jet held by the viewer lined up with the biodread and the viewer was unable to strike the biodread, then, in fact, the XT7 would register a hit and uh, the viewer's little person would be ejected from the jet. Now, there's no killing in this because the biodreads themselves are not alive and there's no being killed. The pilot of the little jet held by the viewer would, in fact, be ejected and um, popped off to safety but, of course, the viewer had lost that round. The idea that the viewing audience could interact in fight scenes, take part in the action of each storyline, was something brand new for television. Additional interactive merchandise was also spawned by the Captain Power franchise. For example, there were training videos, nifty VHS tapes, that allowed viewers to practice their aim, their battle tactics, so that they would be ready for next week's episode to jump into the fray and take part uh, with Captain Power and his soldiers of the future. I can't stress enough how innovative this interactivity really was. Then, there, of course, there were a number of other kinds of merchandise, as you would expect. Uh, action figures, toys, comic books, activity books, etc., it's in the show's interactivity, though, that Captain Power's real contribution to science fiction media lies. Now, I mentioned before that there were some lessons that came out of uh, the excellent scripts for the series that perhaps some of its opponents would have um, done well to heed. Because as soon as Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future hit the air, it became a source of extreme controversy attacks from both the left and the right. From the left, the political left in the United States, came charges of consumerism and exploitation. Peggy Charon of Action for Children's TV told CNN, and I quote, to really watch the show the way it's designed to be watched, you have to go out and buy something to use with the program. That is the height of arrogance, unquote. Now, I would disagree with this on two fronts. First, because I regularly watched the series. I was outside of its target demographic. I was just at the age to start dating and actually rearranged some of my social schedules so I could be certain to catch it. And I certainly didn't own any of the interactive toys that went with the series, and yet I got a lot out of it. The fact that the show is up for awards for acting and script writing also suggests that, in fact, to watch the show the way it needs to be watched uh, did not require uh, all the extra purchases. But secondly, to watch the show at all required the purchase of a television, and that seemed, in fact, to go over the heads of Action for Children's TV. Landmark Entertainment, which created the show, countered, saying that only a fraction of the viewers owned toys, but the ratings were very high. And the only explanation they could give for this was that the quality of storytelling without the interactivity really carried the series. 
Also, the anti-gun lobby of the U.S. political left complained that the series glorified the use of handheld weapons, despite the fact that all of the interactive weapons were non-lethal in intent. Even in this imaginative framework, none of the players were in fact killing living beings, neither were they themselves in danger of being killed by them, even in pretend. And in fact, the show was very careful in how it portrayed the use of deadly force. Critics from the political right argued that the show would create violent juvenile delinquents if children did as the advertisement suggested and helped Captain Power in his fight. Despite the fact that Captain Power was fighting for such values as love, faith, family, and community, fighting against the forces of dehumanization and pure mechanistic materialism. Such opponents also suggested that Captain Power would add to the growing problem of so-called TV addiction that would take children away from valuable family time and more wholesome pursuits. This obviously represents more of an anti-television mentality than specifically an anti-Captain Power mentality. The crux of the story is, though, that this dual attack from the left and the right, this controversy that plagued Captain Power, sent it to an early grave, despite the fact it was a four-year arc designed with scripts for the second season already written, the show was canceled. The final episode aired in March 1988 and climaxed with the tragic, irrevocable death of one of its most popular characters. Even though the series had earned high ratings, awards, and critical acclaim, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future fell to the political controversy that raged in national newspapers and news programs. The memory of Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, however, lives on. If you're interested in knowing more, I would particularly recommend two websites. The Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future website, which is www.captainpower.com, and the fan-run 20th anniversary website, which is 2OTH.captainpower.com. That's 20th.captainpower.com. The second site includes memories not only of fans, but also of cast and crew members. The former also includes interviews with some of the show's creators. A quick search will also prove that there is an international community of Captain Power fans who continue to produce fan fiction, fan film, and fan networks discussing the show and its lasting legacy. Not only is the training ground for genre greats like J. Michael Straczynski, but also for its attractions to both young and mature audiences alike, its unique and early take on the cyberpunk aesthetic, and its innovative pioneering of interactive television technology. Certainly, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future is an important part of science fiction genre history, and it deserves to be remembered. Amy, thank you very much for that. Please pop over to Amy H. Sturgis' site. Links on my site there. Don't forget, copyright is all Amy H. Sturgis. And Amy was dropped us a few hints on Sky what she was going to write next month for Starship Sofa's article for actually Oral Delights. And it sounds a buzz, to be quite honest, so please come back and listen to that. 
So we now get on to the main meat of the matter in tonight's show, the main fiction, and it's by none other than John Varley. And I'll give you a little bit of a heads up on John Varley. Born Texas, 1947, and after spending some time as a confirmed drifter, he settled in Portland, Oregon, and became a full-time writer. He has won the Hugo Nebula Awards on a number of times, and also received the prestigious Prix Apollo. His acclaimed novels include Titan, Wizard, Demon, Millennium, and Steel Breach. John Volley has a new book out at the moment called Rolling Thunder. And I'll just give you a little bit of heads up, a little bit of a blurb on it. Lieutenant Patricia Kelly Elizabeth Strickland, otherwise known as Podkane, is a third-generation Martian. Her grandfather, Manny, was one of the first to set foot on Mars. So Poddy has some planet-sized shoes to fill. That's why she joined the Music, Arts and Drama Division of the Martian Navy. Though some may say her voice is a weapon in itself, Poddy passed the audition, and now she's going to Europa, one of Jupiter's many moons, to be an entertainer. But she's about to learn there's plenty of danger to go around the Martian Navy, even if you've just signed on to sing. Without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents... Bagatelle by John Varley There was a bomb on the Leestrasse, level 45, right outside the Bagatelle flower and gift shop, about a hundred meters down the promenade from Prosperity Plaza. I am a bomb, the bomb said to passers-by. I will explode in four hours, five minutes, and seventeen seconds. I have a force equal to fifty thousand English tons of trinitrotoluene. A small knot of people gathered to look at it. I will go off in four hours, four minutes, and thirty-seven seconds. A few people became worried as the bomb talked on. They remembered business elsewhere and hurried away, often toward the tube trains to King City. Eventually, the trains became overcrowded, and there was some pushing and shoving. The bomb was a metal cylinder, a meter high, two meters long, mounted on four steerable wheels. There was an array of four television cameras mounted on top of the cylinder, slowly scanning through 90 degrees. No one could recall how it came to be there. It looked a little like the municipal street cleaning machines. Perhaps no one had noticed it because of that. I am rated at fifty kilotons, the bomb said, with a trace of pride. The police were called. A nuclear bomb, you say? Municipal police chief Anna Luisa Bach felt sourness in the pit of her stomach and reached for a box of medicated candy. She was overdue for a new stomach, but the rate she went through them on her job, coupled with the size of her paycheck, had caused her to rely more and more on these stopgap measures. And the cost of clone transplants was going up. It says 50 kilotons, said the man on the screen. I don't see what else it could be, unless it's just faking, of course. We're moving in radiation detectors. You said it says... Are you speaking of a note, or a phone call, or what? No, it's talking to us. Seems friendly enough, too, but we haven't gotten around to asking it to disarm itself. 
It could be that its friendliness won't extend that far. No doubt. She ate another candy. Call in the bomb squad, of course. Then tell them to do nothing until I arrive, other than to look the situation over. I'm going to make a few calls. Then I'll be there. No more than thirty minutes. All right, we'll do. There was nothing for it but to look for help. No nuclear bomb had ever been used on Luna. Bach had no experience with them, nor did her bomb crew. She brought her computer online. Roger Berkson liked his job. It wasn't so much the working conditions, which were appalling, but the fringe benefits. He was on call for 30 days, 24 hours a day, at a salary that was nearly astronomical. Then he got 11 months paid vacation. He was paid for the entire year, whether or not he ever had to exercise his special talents during his 30 days duty. In that way, he was like a firefighter. In a way, he was a firefighter. He spent his long vacations in Luna. No one had ever asked Berkson why he did so. Had they asked, he would not have known. But the reason was a subconscious conviction that one day the entire planet Earth would blow up in one glorious fireball. He didn't want to be there when it happened. Berkson's job was bomb disarming for the geopolitical administrative unit called ComEcon Europe. On a busy shift, he might save the lives of 20 million CE Europeans. Of the 35 Terran bomb experts vacationing on Luna at the time of the Lestrasse bomb scare, Berkson happened to be the closest to the projected epicenter of the blast. The central computer found him 25 seconds after Chief Bach rang off from her initial report. He was lining up a putt on the 17th green of the Burning Tree Underground Golf Course, a half kilometer from Prosperity Plaza, when his bag of clubs began to ring. Berkson was wealthy. He employed a human caddy instead of the mechanical sort. The caddy dropped the flag he had been holding and went to answer it. Berkson took a few practice swings, but found that his concentration had been broken. He relaxed and took the call. I need your advice, Bach said, without preamble. I'm the chief of municipal police for New Dresden, Anna Louisa Bach. I've had a report of a nuclear bomb on the Lechstrasse, and I don't have anyone with your experience in these matters. Could you meet me at the tube station in ten minutes? Are you crazy? I'm shooting for a 75 with two holes to go, an easy three-footer on the 17, and facing a par five on the last hole, and you expect me to go chasing after a hoax? Do you know it to be a hoax? Bach asked, wishing he would say yes. Well, no, I just now heard about it myself, but 90% of them are, you know. Fine, I suggest you continue your game. And since you're so sure, I'm going to have Burning Tree sealed off for the duration of the emergency. I want you right there. Berkson considered this. About how far away is this Lechstrasse? About 600 meters, five levels up from you, and one sector over. Don't worry, there must be dozens of steel plates between you and the hawks. You just sit tight, all right? 
Berkson said nothing. I'll be at the tube station in ten minutes, Box said. I'll be in a special capsule. It'll be the last one for five hours. She hung up. Berkson contemplated the wall of the underground enclosure. Then he knelt on the green and lined up his putt. He addressed the ball, tapped it, and heard the satisfying rattle as it sank into the cup. He looked longingly at the eighteenth tee, then jogged off to the clubhouse. I'll be right back, he called over his shoulder. Bach's capsule was two minutes late, but she had to wait another minute for Berkson to show up. She fumed, trying not to glance at the timepiece embedded in her wrist. He got in, still carrying his putter, and their heads were jerked back as the capsule was launched. They moved for only a short distance, then came to a halt. The door didn't open. The system's probably tied up, Bach said, squirming. She didn't like to see the municipal services fail in the company of this Terran. Ah, Berkson said, flashing a grin with an impossible number of square teeth. A panic evacuation, no doubt. You didn't have the tube system closed down, I suppose? No, she said. I, well, I thought there might be a chance to get a large number of people away from the area in case this thing goes off. He shook his head and grinned again. He put this grin after every sentence he spoke, like punctuation. You better seal off the city. If it's a hoax, you're going to have hundreds of dead and injured from the panic. It's a lost cause trying to evacuate. At most, you might save a few thousand. But keep them stationary. If it goes off, it's no use anyway. You'll lose the whole city. And no one's going to question your judgment because you'll be dead. If it doesn't go off, you'll be sitting pretty for having prevented a panic. Do it. I know. Bach began to really dislike this man right then, but decided to follow his advice. And his thinking did have a certain cold logic. She phoned the station and had the lid clamped on the city. Now the cars in the cross tube ahead would be cleared, leaving only her priority capsule moving. They used the few minutes delay while the order was implemented to size each other up. Bach saw a blonde, square-jawed young man in a checkered sweater and gold knickers. He had a friendly face, and that was what puzzled her. There was no trace of worry on his smooth features. His hands were steady, clasped calmly about the steel shaft of his putter. She wouldn't have called his manner cocky or assured, but he did manage to look cheerful. She had just realized that he was looking her over, and was wondering what he saw, when he put his hand on her knee. He might as well have slapped her. She was stunned. What are you? Get your hand off me, you, you groundhog! Berkson's hand had been moving upward. He was apparently unfazed by the insult. He turned in his seat and reached for her hand. His smile was dazzling. I just thought that since we're stalled here with nothing else to do, we might start getting to know each other. No harm in that, is there? I just hate to waste any time, that's all. She wrenched free of his grasp and assumed a defensive posture. 
feeling trapped in a nightmare. But he relented, having no interest in pursuing the matter when he had been rebuffed. All right, we'll wait, but I'd like to have a drink with you, or maybe dinner, after this thing's wrapped up, of course. This thing? How can you think of something like that? At a time like this, I know, I've heard it. Bombs get me horny, is all. So, okay, I'll leave you alone. He grinned again. But maybe you'll feel different when this is over. For a moment, she thought she was going to throw up from a combination of revulsion and fear. Fear of the bomb, not this awful man. Her stomach was twisted into a pretzel, and here he sat, thinking of sex. What was he, anyway? The capsule lurched again, and they were on their way. The deserted Lestrasse made a gleaming frame of stainless steel storefronts and fluorescent ceiling for the improbable pair hurrying from the tube station in the plaza. Berkson, in his anachronistic golf togs, cleats rasping on the polished rock floor, and Bach, half a meter taller than him, thin like a lunarian. She wore the regulation uniform of the municipal police, which was a blue armband and cap with her rank of chief emblazoned on them, a shoulder holster, an equipment belt around her waist from which dangled the shining and lethal-looking tools of her trade, cloth slippers, and a few scraps of clothing in arbitrary places. In the benign environment of the lunar corridors, modesty had died out ages ago. They reached the cordon that had been established around the bomb, and Bach conferred with the officer in charge. The hall was echoing with off-key music. "'What's that?' Bergson asked. Officer Walters, the man to whom Bach had been speaking, looked Bergson over, weighing just how far he had to go in deference to this grinning weirdo. He was obviously the bomb expert Bach had referred to in an earlier call— but he was a Terran and not a member of the force. Should he be addressed as Sir? He couldn't decide. It's the bomb. It's been singing to us for the last five minutes. Ran out of things to say, I guess. Interesting. Swinging the putter lazily from side to side, he walked to the barrier of painted steel crowd control sections. He started sliding one of them to the side. Hold it, uh, sir, Walter said. Wait a minute, Bergson, Bach confirmed, running to the man and almost grabbing his sleeve. She backed away at the last moment. It said no one's to cross that barrier, Walter supplied to Bach's questioning glance. Says it'll blow us all to the far side. What is that damn thing, anyway? Bach asked plaintively. Berkson withdrew from the barrier and took Bach aside with a tactful touch on the arm. He spoke to her with his voice just low enough for Walters to hear. It's a cyborg to human connected to a bomb, probably a uranium device, he said. I've seen the design. It's just like the one that went off in Johannesburg three years ago. I didn't know they were still making them. I heard about it, Bach said, feeling cold and alone. Then you think if it's really a bomb, 
How do you know it's a cyborg? Couldn't it be a tape recordings or a computer? Bergson rolled his eyes slightly, and Bach reddened. Damn it, they were reasonable questions. And to her surprise, he could not defend his opinion logically. She wondered what she was stuck with. Was this man really the expert she took him to be, or a plaid-sweatered impostor? You can call it a hunch. I'm going to talk to this fellow, and I want you to roll up an industrial X-ray unit on the level below this while I'm doing it. On the level above, photographic film. You get the idea? You want to take a picture of the inside of this thing? Won't that be dangerous? Yeah. Are your insurance premiums paid up? Bach said nothing, but gave the orders. A million questions were spinning through her head, but she didn't want to make a fool of herself by asking a stupid one, such as, How much radiation did a big industrial X-ray machine produce when it beamed through a rock and steel floor? She had a feeling she wouldn't like the answer. She sighed and decided to let Berksom have his head until she felt he couldn't handle it. He was about the only hope she had. And he was strolling casually around the perimeter, swinging his goddamn putter behind him, whistling bad harmony with the tune coming from the bomb. What was a career police officer to do? Back him up on the harmonica? The scanning cameras atop the bomb stopped their back-and-forth motion. One of them began to track Berkson. He grinned his flashiest and waved to it. The music stopped. I am a 50-kiloton nuclear bomb of the uranium-235 type, it said. You must stay behind the perimeter I have caused to be erected here. You must not disobey this order. Berkson held up his hands, still grinning, and splayed out his fingers. You got me, bud. I won't bother you. I was just admiring your casing. Pretty nice job there. It seems a shame to blow it up. Thank you, the bomb said cordially. But that is my purpose. You cannot divert me from it. Never entered my mind. Promise. Very well. You may continue to admire me, if you wish, but from a safe distance. Do not attempt to rush me. All my vital wiring is safely protected, and I have a response time of three milliseconds. I can ignite long before you reach me, but I do not wish to do so until the allotted time has come. Berkson whistled. That's pretty fast, brother. Much faster than me, I'm sure. It must be nice being able to move like that after blundering along all your life with neural speeds. Yes, I find it very gratifying. It was quite unexpected benefit of becoming a bomb. This was more like it, Bach thought. Her dislike of Berkson had not blinded her to the fact that he had been checking out his hunch, and her questions had been answered. No tape array could answer questions like that and the machine had as much as admitted that it had been a human being at one time. Berkson completed a circuit back to where Bach and Walters were standing. He paused and said in a low voice, Check out that time. What time? What time did you say you were going to explode? he yelled. In three hours, twenty-one minutes, and eighteen seconds, the bomb supplied. 
That time, he whispered. Get your computers to work on it. See if it's the anniversary of any political group or the time something happened that someone might have a grudge about. He started to turn away, then thought of something. But most important, check the birth records. May I ask why? He seemed to be dreaming, but came back to them. I'm just feeling this character out. I've got a feeling this might be his birthday. Find out who was born at that time. It can't be too many, down to the second, and try to locate them all. The one you can't find will be our guy. I'm betting on it. What are you betting? And how do you know for sure it's a man? That look again, and again she blushed. But, damn it, she had to ask questions. Why should he make her feel defensive about it? Because he's chosen a male voice to put over his speakers. I know that's not conclusive, but you get hunches after a while. As to what I'm betting, no, it's not my life. I'm sure I can get this one. How about dinner tonight if I'm right? The smile was ingenuous, without the trace of lechery she thought she had seen before. But her stomach was still crawling. She turned away without answering. For the next twenty minutes, nothing much happened. Berkson continued his slow stroll around the machine, stopping from time to time to shake his head in admiration. The thirty men and women of Chief Bach's police detail stood around nervously with nothing to do, as far away from the machine as pride would allow. There was no sense in taking cover. Bach herself was kept busy coordinating the behind-the-scenes maneuvering from a command post that had been set up around the corner in the Elysian Travel Agency. It had phones and a computer output printer. She sensed the dropping morale among her officers, who could see nothing going on. Had they known that surveying lasers were poking their noses around the tree in the plaza, taking bearings to within a thousandth of a millimeter, they might have felt a little better and on the floor below, the x-ray machine had arrived. Ten minutes later, the output began to chatter. Bach could hear it in the silent, echoing corridor from her position halfway between the travel agency and the bomb. She turned and met a young officer with the green armband of a rookie. The woman's hand was ice-cold as she handed Bach the sheet of yellow printout paper. There were three names printed on it, and below that, some dates and events listed. The bottom information was from the fourth expansion of the problem, the officer explained. Very low probability stuff. The three people were all born either on the second or within the three-second margin of error in three different years. Everyone else has been contacted. Keep looking for these three, too, Bach said. As she turned away, she noticed that the young officer was pregnant, about in her fifth month. She thought briefly of sending her away from the scene. But what was the use? Berkson saw her coming and broke off his slow circuits of the bomb. He took the paper from her and scanned it. He tore off the bottom part without being told it was low probability, crumpled it and let it drop to the floor. Scratching his head, he walked slowly back to the bomb. Hans, he called out. How did you know my name? the bomb asked. Ah, Hans, my boy, credit us with some sense. You can't have gone into this without knowing that the Munipol can do very fast investigations. Unless I've been underestimating you, have I? No, the bomb conceded. I knew that you would find out who I was. 
but it doesn't alter the situation. Of course not, but it makes for easier conversation. How has life been treating you, my friend? Terrible, mourned the man who had become a fifty-kiloton nuclear weapon. Every morning, Hans Leiter rolled out of bed and padded into his cozy water closet. It was not the standard model for residential apartment modules, but a special one he had installed after he moved in. Hans lived alone, and it was the one luxury he allowed himself. In his little palace, he sat in a chair that massaged him into wakefulness, washed him, shaved him, powdered him, cleaned his nails, splashed him with scent, then made love to him with a rubber imitation that was a good facsimile of the real thing. Hans was awkward with women. He would dress, walk down three hundred meters of corridor, and surrender himself to a pedestrian slideway that took him as far as the cross Chrysium tube. There he allowed himself to be fired like a projectile through a tunnel through the lunar surface. Hans worked at the Chrysium heavy machinery foundry. His job there was repairing almost anything that broke down. He was good at it. He was much more comfortable with machines than with people. One day he made a slip and got his leg caught in a massive roller. It was not a serious accident because the fail-safe systems turned off the machine before his body or head could be damaged, but it hurt terribly and completely ruined the leg. It had to be taken off. While he was waiting for the cloned replacement limb to be grown, Hans had to be fitted with a prosthetic. It had been a revelation to him. It worked like a dream, as good as his old leg, and perhaps better. It was connected to his severed leg nerve, but was equipped with a threshold cut-off circuit, and one day, when he barked his artificial shin, he saw that it had caused no pain. He recalled the way the same injury had felt with his flesh-and-blood leg, and again he was impressed. He thought, too, of the agony when his leg had been caught in the machine. When the new leg was ready for transplanting, Hans had elected to retain the prosthetic. It was unusual, but not unprecedented. From that time on, Hans, who had never been known to his co-workers as talkative or social, withdrew even more from his fellow humans. He would speak only when spoken to. But people had observed him talking to the stamping press and the water cooler and the robot sweeper. At night, it was Hans' habit to sit on his vibrating bed and watch the Hullavision until one o'clock. At that time, his kitchen would prepare him a late snack, roll it to him in his bed, and he would retire for the night. For the last three years, Hans had been neglecting to turn the set on before getting into bed. Nevertheless, he continued to sit quietly on the bed, staring at the empty screen. When she finished reading the personal data printout, Bach was struck once more at the efficiency of the machines in her control. This man was almost a cipher, yet there were 9,000 words in storage concerning his uneventful life, ready to be called up and printed into an excruciatingly boring biography. So you came to feel that you were being controlled at every step in your life by machines, Berkson was saying. He was sitting on one of the barriers, swinging his legs back and forth. Bach joined him and offered the long sheet of printout. He waved it away. She could hardly blame him. But it's true, the bomb said. We are all, you know. We're part of this 
huge machine that's called New Dresden. It moves us around like parts on an assembly line, washes us, feeds us, puts us to bed, and sings us to sleep. Ah, Bergson said agreeably. Are you a Luddite, Hans? No, the bomb said in a shocked voice. Roger, you've missed the whole point. I don't want to destroy the machines. I want to serve them better. I want it to become a machine, like my new leg. Don't you see? We're part of the machine, but we're the most inefficient part. The two talked on, and Bacht wiped the sweat from her palms. She couldn't see where all this was going, unless Berkson seriously hoped to talk Hans Leiter out of what he was going to do. In, she glanced at the clock, two hours and forty-three minutes. It was maddening. On the one hand, she recognized the skill he was using in establishing a rapport with the cyborg. They were on a first-name basis, and at least the damn machine cared enough to argue its position. On the other hand, so what? What good was it doing? Walters approached and whispered into her ear. She nodded and tapped Berkson on the shoulder. They're ready to take the picture whenever you are, she said. He waved her off. Don't bother me, he said loudly. This is getting interesting. So, if what you're saying is true, he went on to Hans, getting up and pacing intently back and forth, this time inside the line of barriers, maybe I ought to look into this myself. You really like being cyborged better than being human? Infinitely so, the bomb said. He sounded enthusiastic. I need no sleep now, and I no longer have to bother with elimination or eating. I have a tank for nutrients, which are fed into the housing where my brain and central nervous system are located. He paused. I try to eliminate the ups and downs of hormone flow and the emotional reactions that followed, he confided. No dice, huh? No, something always distracted me. So when I heard of this place where they would cyborg me and get rid of all that, I jumped at the chance. Inactivity was making Bach impulsive. She had to say or do something. Where did you get the work done, Hans? she ventured. The bomb started to say something, but Berkson laughed loudly and slapped Bach hard on the back. <laughs> oh no, chief, that's pretty tricky, right, Hans? She's trying to get you to rat. That's not done, chief. There's a point of honor involved. Who is that? the bomb asked suspiciously. Let me introduce Chief Anna Luisa Bach of the New Dresden Police. Han, meet Hans. Police? Hans asked, and Bach felt goose pimples when she detected a note of fright in the voice. What was this maniac trying to do, frighten the guy like that? She was close to pulling Berkson off the case. She held off because she thought she could see a familiar pattern in it, something she could use as a way to participate, even if ignominiously. It was the good guy, bad guy routine, one of the oldest police maneuvers in the book. Oh, don't be like that, Bergson said to Hans. Not all cops are brutes. Anne here, she's a nice person. Give her a chance. She's only doing her job. Oh, I have no objection to police, the bomb said. 
They are necessary to keep the social machine functioning. Law and order is a basic precept of the coming new mechanical society. I'm pleased to meet you, Chief Bach. I wish the circumstances didn't make us enemies. Pleased to meet you, Hans. She thought carefully before she phrased her next question. She wouldn't have to take the hard-line approach to contrast herself with affable buddy-buddy Berkson. She needn't be an antagonist, but it wouldn't hurt if she asked questions that probed at his motives. Tell me, Hans, you say you're not a Luddite. You say you like machines. Do you know how many machines you'll destroy if you set yourself off? And even more important, what you'll do to this social machine you've been talking about? You'll wipe out the whole city. The bomb seemed to be groping for words. He hesitated, and Bach felt the first glimmer of hope since this insanity began. You don't understand. You're speaking from an organic viewpoint. Life is important to you. A machine is not concerned with life. Damage to a machine, even the social machine, is simply something to be repaired. In a way, I hope to set an example. I wanted to become a machine, and at the best, the very ultimate machine, Bergson put in, is the atomic bomb. It's the end point of all mechanical thinking. Exactly, said the bomb, sounding very pleased. It was nice to be understood. I wanted to be the very best machine I could possibly be, and it had to be this. Beautiful, Hans, Bergson breathed. I see what you're talking about. So if we go on with that line of thought, we logically come to the conclusion. And he was off into an exploration of the fine points of the new mechanistic worldview. Bach was trying to decide which was the crazier of the two when she was handed another message. She read it, then tried to find a place to break into the conversation. But there was no convenient place. Bergson was more and more animated, almost frothing at the mouth as he discovered points of agreement between the two of them. Bach noticed her officer standing around nervously following the conversation. It was clear from their expressions that they feared they were being sold out, that when Zero Hour arrived they would still be here watching intellectual ping-pong. But long before that she could have a mutiny on her hands. Several of them were fingering their weapons, probably without even knowing it. She touched Berkson on the sleeve, but he waved her away. Damn it, this was too much. She grabbed him and nearly pulled him from his feet, swung him around until her mouth was close to his ear, and growled. Listen to me, you idiot. They're going to take this picture. You'll have to stand back some. It's better if we all shielded. Leave me alone, he shot back and pulled from her grasp, but he was still smiling. This is just getting interesting, he said in a normal tone of voice. Berkson came near to dying at that moment. Three guns were trained on him from the circle of officers, awaiting only the order to fire. They didn't like seeing their chief treated that way. Bach herself was damn near to giving the order. The only thing that stayed her hand was the knowledge that with Berkson dead, the machine might go off ahead of schedule. The only thing to do now was to get him out of the way and go on as best she could, knowing that she was doomed to failure. 
No one could say she hadn't given the expert a chance. But what I was wondering about, Bergson was saying, was why today? What happened today? Is this the day Cyrus McCormick invented the combine harvester or something? It's my birthday, Hans said, somewhat shyly. Your birthday? Bergson managed to look totally amazed to learn what he already knew. Your birthday? That's great, Hans. Many happy returns of the day, my friend. He turned and took in all of the officers with an expansive sweep of his hands. Let's sing, people. Come on, it's his birthday, for heaven's sake. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Hans. He bellowed. He was off key. He swept his hands in grand circles with no sense of rhythm. But so infectious was his mania that several of the officers found themselves joining in. He ran around the circle, pulling the words out of them with great scooping motions of his hands. Bach bit down hard on the inside of her cheeks to keep herself steady. She had been singing, too. The scene was so ridiculous, so blackly improbable. She was not the only one who was struck the same way. One of her officers, a brave man who she knew personally to have shown courage under fire, fell on his face in a dead faint. A woman officer covered her face with her hands and fled down the corridor, making helpless coughing sounds. She found an alcove and vomited. And still Berkson capered. Bach had her gun halfway out of her shoulder holster when he shouted, "'What's a birthday without a party?' he asked. "'Let's have a big party!' He looked around, fixed on the flower shop. He started for it, and as he passed Bach, he whispered, "'Take the picture now!' It galvanized her. She desperately wanted to believe he knew what he was doing, and just at the moment when his madness seemed total, he had shown her the method. "'A distraction!' "'Please let it be a distraction!' She turned and gave the prearranged signal to the officer standing at the edge of Prosperity Plaza. She turned back in time to see Berkson smash the window of the flower shop with his putter. It made a deafening crash. "'Goodness!' said Hans, who sounded truly shocked. "'Did you have to do that? That's private property!' "'What does it matter?' Berkson yelled. Hell, man, you're going to do as much worse real soon. I'm just getting things started. He reached in and pulled out an armload of flowers, signaling to the others to give him a hand. The police didn't like it, but soon they were looting the shop and building a huge wreath just outside the line of barriers. I guess you're right, said Hans a little breathlessly. A taste of violence had excited him, whetted his appetite for more to come. "'But you startled me. I felt a real thrill, like I haven't felt since I was human.' "'Then let's do it some more!' And Berkson ran up and down one side of the street, breaking out every window he could reach. He picked up small articles he found inside the shops and threw them. Some of them shattered when they hit. He finally stopped. Leistrasse had been transformed— no longer the scrubbed and air-conditioned lunar environment, 
It had become as shattered, as chaotic, and uncertain as the tension-filled emotional atmosphere it contained. Bach shuddered and swallowed the rising taste of bile. It was a precursor of things to come, she was sure. It hit her deeply to see the staid and respectable Leistrasse ravaged. "'A cake!' Berkson said. "'We'll have to have a cake. Hold on a minute, I'll be right back.' He strode quickly toward Bach, took her elbow and turned her, pulled her insistently away with him. "'You'll have to get those officers away from here,' he said conversationally. "'They're tense. They could explode at any minute. In fact,' and he favored her with his imbecile grin, "'they're probably more dangerous now than the bomb.' "'You mean you think it's a fake?' "'No, it's for real.' I know the psychological pattern. After this much trouble, he won't want to be a dud. Other types, they're in it for the attention, and they'll just as soon fake it. Not Hans. But what I mean is, I have him. I can get him. But I can't count on your officers. Pull them back and leave only two or three of your most trusted people. All right. She had decided again, more from a sense of helpless futility than anything else, to trust him. He had pulled a neat diversion with the flower shop and the x-ray. "'We may have him already,' he went on, as they reached the end of the street and turned the corner. "'Often the x-ray is enough. It cooks some of the circuitry and makes it unreliable. I'd hoped to kill him outright, but he's shielded.' Oh, he's probably got a lethal dosage, but it'll take him days to die. That doesn't do us any good. And if his circuitry is knocked out, the only way to find out is to wait. We have to do better than that. Here's what I want to do. He stopped abruptly and relaxed, leaning against the wall and gazing out over the trees and artificial sunlight of the plaza. Bach could hear songbirds. They had always made her feel good before. Now all she could think of was incinerated corpses. Berkson ticked off points on his fingers. She listened to him carefully. Some of it was strange, but no worse than she had already witnessed. And he really did have a plan. He really did. The sense of relief was so tremendous that it threatened to create a mood of euphoria in her one not yet justified by the circumstances. She nodded curtly to each of his suggestions, then again to the officer who stood beside her, confirming what Berkson had said and turning it into orders. The young man rushed off to carry them out, and Berkson started to return to the bomb. Bach grabbed him. Why wouldn't you let Hans answer my question about who did the surgical work on him? Was that part of your plan? The question was half belligerent. Oh, yeah, it was, in a way. I just grabbed the opportunity to make him feel closer to me. But it wouldn't have done you any good. He'll have a block against telling that, for sure. It could even be set to explode the bomb if he tries to answer that question. Hans is a maniac, but don't underestimate the people who helped him get where he is now. They'll be protected. Who are they? Berkson shrugged. It was such a casual, uncaring gesture that Bach was annoyed again. I have no idea. I'm not political, Anne. 
I don't know the anti-abortion movement from the Freedom for Mauritania League. They build them, I take them apart. It's as simple as that. Your job is to find out how it happened. I guess you ought to get started on that. We already have, she conceded. I just thought that, well, coming from Earth, that this sort of thing happens all the time, that you might know... Uh, damn it, Bergson, why? Why is this happening? He laughed while Bach turned red and went into a slow boil. Any of her officers, seeing her expression, would have headed for the nearest blast shelter. But Bergson laughed on. Didn't he give a damn about anything? Sorry, he forced out. I've heard that question before from other police chiefs. It's a good question, he waited, a half-smile on his face. When she didn't say anything, he went on. You don't have the right perspective on this, Anne. That's Chief Bach to you, damn you. Okay, he said easily. What you don't see is that this thing is no different from a hand grenade tossed into a crowd or a bomb sent through the mail. It's a form of communication. It's just that today, with so many people, you have to shout a little louder to get any attention. But who? They haven't even identified themselves. You're saying that Hans is a tool of these people? He's been wired into the bomb with his own motives for exploding? Obviously he didn't have the resources to do this himself. I can see that. Oh, you'll hear from them. I don't think they expect him to be successful. He's a warning. If they were really serious, they could find out the sort of person they want, one who's politically committed and will die for the cause. Of course, they don't care if the bomb goes off. They'll be pleasantly surprised if it does. Then they can stand up and pound their chests for a while. They'll be famous. But where did they get to the uranium? The security is for the first time. Berkson showed a trace of annoyance. Don't be silly. The path leading today was irrevocably set in 1945. There was never any way to avoid it. The presence of a tool implies that it will be used. You can try your best to keep it in the hands of what you think of as responsible people, but it'll never work. And it's no different. That's what I'm saying. This bomb is just another weapon. It's a cherry bomb in an anthill. It's going to cause one hill of ants a hell of a lot of trouble. But it's no threat to the race of ants. Bach could not see it that way. She tried, but it was still a nightmare of entirely new proportions to her. How could he equate the killing of millions of people with a random act of violence? where three or four might get hurt. She was familiar with that. Bombs went off every day in her city, as in every human city. People were always dissatisfied. I could walk down... No, it's up here, isn't it? Bergson mused for a moment on cultural differences. Anyway, give me enough money, and I'll bet I could go up to your slum neighborhoods right this minute and buy you as many kilos of uranium or plutonium as you want, which is something you ought to be doing, by the way. Anything can be bought. Anything. 
For the right price, you could have bought weapons-grade material in the black market as early as 1960 or so. It would have been very expensive. There wasn't much of it. You'd have had to buy a lot of people. But now, well, you think it out. He stopped and seemed embarrassed by his outburst. I've read a little about this, he apologized. She did think it out as she followed him back to the cordon. What he said was true. When controlled fusion proved too costly for wide-scale use, humanity had opted for fast-breeder reactors. There had been no other choice. And from that moment, nuclear bombs in the hands of terrorists had been the price humanity accepted, and the price they would continue to pay. "'I want to ask you one more question,' she said. He stopped and turned to face her. His smile was dazzling. "'Ask away, but are you going to take me up on that bet?' She was momentarily unsure of what he meant. "'Oh, are you saying you help us locate the underground uranium ring? I'd be grateful. No, no. Oh, I'll help you. I'm sure I can make a contact. I used to do that before I got into this game.' What I meant was, are you going to bet I can't find some? We could bet, say, a dinner together as soon as I've found it. Time limit of seven days. How about it? She thought she had only two alternatives, walk away from him or kill him. But she found a third. You're a betting man. I guess I can see why. But that's what I wanted to ask you. How can you stay so calm? Why doesn't this get to you like it does to me and my people? You can't tell me it's simply that you're used to it. He thought about it. And why not? You can get used to anything, you know. Now, what about that bet? If you don't stop talking about that, she said quietly, I'm going to break your arm. All right, he said nothing further, and she asked no further questions. The fireball grew in milliseconds into an inferno that could scarcely be described in terms comprehensible to humans. Everything in a half-kilometer radius simply vanished into superheated gases and plasma. Buttresses, plate-glass windows, floors and ceilings, pipes, wires, tanks, machines— Cugas and trinkets by the millions, books, tapes, apartments, furniture, household pets, men, women, and children. They were the lucky ones. The force of the expanding blast compressed two hundred levels below it, like a giant sitting on a dagwood sandwich, making holes through plate steel turned to putty by the heat as easily as a punch press through tin foil. Upward, the surface bulged into the soundless lunar night and split to reveal a white hell beneath. Chunks flew away, chunks as large as city sectors, before the center collapsed back on itself to leave a crater whose walls were a maze of compartments and ant tunnels that dripped and flowed like warm gelatin. No trace was left of human bodies within two kilometers of the explosion. They had died after only the shortest period of suffering, 
their bodies consumed or spread into an invisible layer of organic film by the combination of heat and pressure that passed through the walls, entered rooms where the doors were firmly shut. Further away, the sound was enough to congeal the bodies of a million people before the heat roasted them. The blast stripped flesh from bones to leave shrunken stick figures. Still the effects attenuated as the blast was channeled into corridors that were structurally strong enough to remain intact, and that very strength was the downfall of the inhabitants of the maze. Twenty kilometers from the epicenter, pressure doors popped through steel flanges like squeezed watermelon seeds. What was left was five million burnt, blasted corpses, and ten million injured so hideously that they would die in hours or days. But Bach had miraculously been thrown clear by some freak of the explosion. She hurtled through the void, with fifteen million ghosts following her, and each carried a birthday cake. They were singing. She joined in. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Chief Bach? Huh? She felt a cold chill pass over her body. For a moment, she could only stare down into the face of Roger Berkson. You all right now? he asked. He looked concerned. I'm... What happened? He patted her on both arms, then shook her heartily. Nothing. You drifted off for a moment. He narrowed his eyes. I think you were daydreaming. I want to be diplomatic about this. Uh, what I mean, I've seen it happen before. I think you were trying to get away from us. She rubbed her hands over her face. I think I was... But I sure went in the wrong direction. I'm all right now. She could remember it now, and knew she had not passed out or become totally detached from what was going on. She had watched it all, her memories of the explosion, so raw and real a moment before, were already the stuff of nightmares. Too bad she hadn't come awake into a better world. It was so damn unfair. That was the reward at the end of a nightmare, wasn't it? You woke up to find everything was all right. Instead, here was a long line of uniform officers bearing birthday cakes to a 50-kiloton atomic bomb. Berkson had ordered the lights turned off in the Lestrasse. When his order had not been carried out, he broke out the lights with his putter. Soon he had some of the officers helping him. Now the beautiful Lestrasse, the pride of New Dresden, was a flickering tunnel through hell. The light of a thousand tiny birthday candles on five hundred cakes turned everything red-orange and made people into shadowed demons. Officers kept arriving with hastily wrapped presents, flowers, balloons. Hans, the little man who was now nothing but a brain and a nerve network floating in a lead container. Hans, the cause of all this, the birthday boy himself, watched it all in unconcealed delight from his battery of roving television cameras. He sang loudly, I am a bomb! I am a bomb! He yelled. He had never had so much fun. Bach and Berkson retreated from the scene into the darkened recess of the Bagatelle flower shop. There a stereo viewing tank had been set up. 
The X-ray picture had been taken with a moving plate technique that allowed a computer to generate a three-dimensional model. They leaned over the tank now and studied it. They had been joined by Sergeant McCoy, Bach's resident bomb expert, and another man from the Lunar Radiation Laboratory. This is Hans, said Bergson, moving a red dot in the tank by means of a dial on the side. It flicked over and around a vague gray shape that trailed dozens of wires. Bach wondered again at the pressures that would allow a man to like having his body stripped from him. There was nothing in that lead flask but the core of a man, the brain and central nervous system. Here's the body of the bomb, the two subcritical masses, the H.E. charge, the timer, the arming barrier, which is now withdrawn. It's an old design, ladies and gentlemen, old but reliable, as basic as the bow and arrow. It's very much like the first one dropped on the Nippon Empire at Hiroshima. You're sure it will go off, then? Park put in. Sure as taxes. Hell, a kid could build one of these in a bathroom, given only the uranium and some shielding equipment. Now let me see. He poured over the phantom in the tank, tracing out wiring paths with the experts. They debated possibilities, lines of attack, drawbacks. At last they seemed to reach a consensus. As I see it, we have only one option, Bergson said. We have to go for his volitional control over the bomb. I'm pretty sure we've isolated the main cable that goes from him to the detonator. Knock that out, and he can't do a thing. We can pry that tin can open by conventional means and disarm that way. McCoy? I agree, said McCoy. We'd have a full hour. And I'm sure we can get in there with no trouble. When they cyborged this one, they put all their cards on the human operator. They didn't bother to put in three blocks, since Hans could presumably blow it up before we can get close enough to do anything. With his control out, we only have to open it up with a torch and drop the damper into place. The LRL man nodded his agreement. Though I've not quite as convinced as Mr. Bergson that he's got the right cable in mind for what he wants to do. If we had more time... We've wasted enough time already, Bach said decisively. She had swung rapidly from near terror of Roger Bergson to total trust. It was her only defense. She knew she could do nothing at all about the bomb and had to trust someone. Then we go for it. Is your crew in place? Do they know what to do? And above all, are they good? Really good? There won't be a second chance. Yes, yes, and yes, Bach said. They'll do it. We know how to cut rock on Luna. Then give them the coordinates and go. Bergson seemed to relax a bit. Bach saw that he had been under some form of tension, even if it was only excitement at the challenge. He had just given his last order. It was no longer in his hands. His fatalistic gambler's instinct came into play, and the restless, churning energy he had brought to the Enterprise vanished. There was nothing to do about it but wait. Bergson was good at waiting. He had lived through twenty-one of these final countdowns. He faced Bach and started to say something to her, then thought better of it. She saw doubt in his face for the first time, and it made her skin crawl. Damn it, she had thought he was sure. Chief, he said quietly, 
I want to apologize for the way I treated you these last few hours. It's not something I can control when I'm on the job. I... This time, it was Bach's turn to laugh, and the release of tension it brought with it was almost orgasmic. She felt like she hadn't laughed for a million years. Forgive me, she said. I saw you were worried, and I thought it was about the bomb. It was just such a relief. Oh, yeah, he said, dismissing it. No point in worrying now. Either your people hit it or they don't. We won't know if they don't. What I was saying, it just sort of comes over me. Honestly, I get horny. I get manic. I totally forget about all the people except as objects to be manipulated. So I just wanted to say, I like you. I'm glad you put up with me. And I won't pester you any more. She came over and put her hand on his shoulder. Can I call you Raja? Thanks. Listen, if this thing works, I'll have dinner with you. I'll give you the key to the city, a ticker tape parade, and a huge bonus for our consultant fee. And my eternal friendship. We've been tense, okay? Let's forget about these last few hours. All right. His smile was quite different this time. Outside, it happened very quickly. The crew on the laser drill were positioned beneath the bomb, working from ranging reports and calculations to aim their brute at precisely the right spot. The beam took less than a tenth of a second to eat through the layer of rock in the ceiling and emerge in the air above the Lestrasse. It ate through the metal sheath of the bomb's underside, the critical wire, the other side of the bomb, and part of the ceiling like they weren't even there. It had penetrated into the level above before it could be shut off. There was a shower of sparks, a quick sliding sound, then a muffled thud. The whole structure of the bomb trembled, and smoke screeched from the two drilled holes in the top and bottom. Bach didn't understand it, but she could see that she was alive and assumed it was over. She turned to Berkson, and the shock of seeing him nearly stopped her heart. His face was a gray mask, drained of blood. His mouth hung open. He swayed and almost fell over. Bach caught him and eased him to the floor. Raja, what is it? Is it still? Will it go off? Answer me! Answer me! What should I do? He waved weakly, pawed at her hands. She realized he was trying to give her a reassuring pat. It was feeble indeed. No danger, he wheezed, trying to get his breath back. No danger. The wrong wire. We hit the wrong wire. Just luck is all. Nothing but luck. She remembered they had been trying to remove Hans's control over the bomb. Was he still in control? Berkson answered before she could speak. He's dead. That explosion. That was the detonator going off. He reacted just too late. We hit the disarming switch. The shield dropped into place so the masses couldn't come together, even if the bomb was set off. Which he did. He set it off. That sound? That mumph? He was not with her. His eyes stared back into a time and place that held horror for him. I heard that sound, the detonator, once before, over the telephone. 
I was coaching this woman, not more than twenty-five, because I couldn't get there in time. She had only three more minutes. I heard that sound, then nothing, nothing. She sat near him on the floor as her crew began to sort out the mess, haul the bomb away for disposal, laugh and joke in hysterical relief. At last, Berkson regained control of himself. There was no trace of the bomb except a distant hollowness in his eyes. Come on, he said, getting to his feet with a little help from her. You're going on a twenty-four-hour leave. You've earned it. We're going back to Burning Tree, and you're going to watch me make a par five on the eighteenth. Then we've got a date for dinner. What place is nice? There you go, don't forget. Copyright is Mr. John Varley. And it was sure nice to get a narration, a damn fine narration by our good friend, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh. Fred, thank you so much for that that story. Fred gave me that story months ago. And I don't know why I've hung on to it, but Fred, fantastic narration. You've got another one there, don't forget. Get that one sorted out, sir. <laughs> and I will join Fred. That's quite weird that how everyone's going to be on the round table as well. So I'll join Fred on the round table. And it'd be nice to kind of get Fred's point of view of how he's, you know, what he, how he did, how he tackled that story and kind of obstacles he hit against. And was it a good story to narrate? Join us on the round table for that. So that is the Starship Silver Oral Delights. Hope everyone's enjoyed it. If there's anything to say, please drop me an email. I would love to know where you listen to this show, what you're doing, what books you're reading, anything like that. Any concerns? Starshipsover at gmail.com Do please consider dropping a donation. The monthly donations is now up and fixed. Yes, apologies for that. I had quite a, few, a number of people come and say, well, you've been yapping on about monthly donations. It's not even working. So, yes, it is now fixed, so please... That'd be a great way to support the show. Monthly donations, £2.50. If, you know, you feel like I'm kind of giving a little bit to you and everyone's kind of working hard to get this kind of show out now, please consider monthly donations or a one-off donation. And that will actually entitle you to the new show that will be coming very soon as well, so look out for that. And a hint up, I'm nearly there as well with putting out the audio book that's come from my good self years ago. So God help you. I will actually play one of the stories on this actual oral delights when it's all kind of ready. I'm just now getting the final copy or the final draft of the actual cover. It's just looking amazing, to be quite honest. So, yes, do join me for, for that. That'll be quite nerve-wracking, getting that torn about on the round-table discussion. So, anyway, until next week, I'd just like to say... Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two.